0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. In its written form, this message is a part of a collection donated to the Chapel Library by Perry Boardman, who in 2001 created a 63-volume set of Spurgeon's sermons known as Spurgeon's Gems. That collection is also available online at www.spurgeongems.com This and all of the sermons in the collection is used by permission of the Chapel Library that you can contact at chapel at Today's message is number 20 of volume 1 in this series. It's entitled, The Carnal Mind, Enmity Against God. It was preached on Sabbath morning, April April 22, 1855, at Exeter Hall in Strand. The text Romans 8-7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now this is a very solemn indictment, which the Apostle Paul here speaks against the carnal mind. He declares it to be enmity against God. When we consider what man once was, only second to the angels, the companion of God, who walked with him in the garden of Eden in the cool of the day, when we think of him as being made in the very image of his creator, pure, spotless, and unblemished, we cannot but feel bitterly grieved to find such an accusation as this preferred against us as a race. We may well hang our harps upon the willows while we listen to the voice of Jehovah, solemnly speaking to his rebellious creature, How art thou fallen from heaven, thou son of the morning? Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee, In the day that thou wast created, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and will destroy thee O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. There's much to sadden us in a view of the ruins of our race, as the Carthaginian who might tread the desolate site of his much-loved city would shed many tears when he saw it laid in heaps by the Romans, or as the Jew, wandering through the deserted streets of Jerusalem, would lament that the plowshare, had marred the beauty and the glory of that city, which was the joy of the whole earth. So ought we to mourn for ourselves and our race, when we behold the ruins of that goodly structure which God has piled, that creature matchless in symmetry, second only to angelic intellect, that mighty being, man, when we behold how he is fallen, fallen, fallen from his high estate, and lies in a mass of destruction. A few years ago, a star was seen blazing out with considerable brilliance, but soon disappeared. It has since been affirmed that it was a world on fire, thousands of millions of miles from us, and yet the rays of the conflagration reached us, the noiseless messenger of light, gave to the distant dwellers on this globe the alarm of a world on fire. But what is the conflagration of a distant planet? What is the destruction of the mere material of the most ponderous orb compared with this fall of humanity, this wreck of all that is holy and sacred in ourselves? To us, indeed, the things are scarcely comparable since we are deeply interested in one, though not in the other. The fall of Adam was our fall. We fell in and with him. We were equal sufferers. It is the ruin of our own house that we lament. It is the destruction of our own city that we bemoan when we stand and see written in lines too plain for us to mistake their meaning The carnal mind, that very same mind which was once holiness and has now become carnal, is enmity against God. May God help me this morning, solemnly, to prefer this indictment against you all. Oh, that the Holy Spirit may so convince us of sin that we may unanimously plead guilty before God. There is no difficulty in understanding my text. It needs uh, scarcely any explanation. We all know that the word carnal here signifies fleshly. The old translators rendered the passage thus. The mind of the flesh is enmity against God. That is to say, the natural mind, that soul which we inherit from our fathers, uh, that which was Born within us, when our bodies were fashioned by God, the fleshly mind, the phronema sarkos, the lusts, the passions of the soul, it is this which has gone astray from God and become enmity against him. But before we enter upon a discussion of the doctrine of the text, observe how strongly the apostle expresses it. The carnal mind, he says, it is enmity against God. He uses a noun and not an adjective. He does not say it is opposed to God merely, but it is positive enmity. It is not just black, it is blackness. It is not at enmity, but enmity itself. It is not corrupt. But corruption, it is not rebellious, it is rebellion. It is not wicked, it is wickedness itself. The heart, though it be deceitful, is positively deceit. It is evil in the concrete, sin in the essence. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It is not envious against God, it is envy. It is not at Enmity, it is actual enmity. Nor need we say a word to explain that it is enmity against God. It does not charge manhood with an aversion merely to the dominion, laws, or doctrines of Jehovah, but it strikes a deeper and surer blow. It does not strike man upon the head, but it penetrates into his heart. It lays the axe at the root of the tree, and pronounces man enmity against God, against the person of the Godhead, against the deity, against the mighty maker of this world, not at enmity against his Bible or against his gospel, although that is true, but against God himself, against his essence, his existence, and his person. Let us then weigh the words of the text, for they are solemn words. They are well put together by that master of eloquence, Paul, and they were, moreover, dictated by the Holy Spirit, who tells man how to speak aright. May he help us to expound, as he has already given us the passage to explain. We shall be called upon to notice this morning, first, the truthfulness of this assertion. Secondly, the universality of the evil here complained of. And thirdly, we will still further enter into the depths of the subject and press it to your hearts by showing the enormity of the evil. And after that, should we have time, we will deduce one or two doctrines from the general fact. First, we're called upon to speak of the truthfulness of this great statement, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. It needs no proof, for since it is written in God's word, we as Christian men are bound to bow before it. The words of the scriptures are words of infinite wisdom. And if reason cannot see the ground of a statement of revelation, it is bound most reverently to believe it. Since we are well assured Even should it be above our reason, that it cannot be contrary thereunto. Here I find it written in the scriptures, The carnal mind is enmity against God, and that of itself is enough for me. But did I need witnesses? I would conjure up the nations of antiquity. I would unroll the volume of ancient history. I would tell you of the awful deeds of mankind. It may be I might move your souls to detestation if I spake of the cruelty of this race to itself. If I showed you how it made the world an akeldama, a field of blood, by its wars, and deluged it with blood by its fightings and murders. If I should recite the black list of vices in which the whole nations have indulged or even bring before you the characters of some of the most eminent philosophers, I should blush to speak of them, and you would refuse to hear. Yea, it would be impossible for you, as refined inhabitants of a civilized country, to endure the mention of the crimes that were committed by those very men, who nowadays are held up as being paragons of perfection. I fear it, if all the truth were written, we should rise up from reading the lives of earth's mighty heroes and proudest sages. And we, we would say at once of all of them, they are clean gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And did not that suffice? I would point out to you the, the delusions of the heathen. I would tell you of their priestcraft by which their souls have been enthralled in superstition. I would drag their gods before you. I would let you witness the horrid obscenities, the diabolical rites which are to these besotted men most sacred things. Then after you had heard what the natural religion of man is, I would ask, what must his irreligion be if this is his devotion What must be his impiety? If this is his ardent love of the Godhead, what must his hatred thereof be? Now you would, I am sure, at once confess, did you know what the race is, that the indictment is proven, and that the world must unreservedly and truthfully exclaim, Guilty! A further argument I might find in the fact that the best of men have been always the readiest to confess their depravity. The holiest men, the most free from impurity, have always felt it most. He whose garments are the whitest will best perceive the spots upon them. He whose crown shines the brightest will know when he has lost a jewel. He who gives the most light to the world will always be able to discover his own darkness. The angels of heaven veil their faces. And the angels of God on earth, his chosen people, must always veil their faces with humility when they think of what they were. Here David, he was none of those who boast of a holy nature and a pure disposition. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Hear all those holy men who have written in the inspired volume, and you shall find them all confessing that they were not clean. No, not one. Hear one of them exclaimed, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? More, I will summon one other witness To the truthfulness of this fact, who shall decide the question? It shall be your conscience. Conscience, I will put you in the witness box, and I will cross-examine you this morning. Conscience, truly answer. Uh, Be not drugged with self-security. Speak the truth. Did you ever hear the heart say, I wish there were no God? Have not all men at times wished that our religion were not true? Though they could not entirely rid their souls of the idea of the Godhead, did they not wish that there might not be God? Have they not had the desire that it might turn out that all these divine realities were a delusion, a farce, an imposture? Yea, says every man, that has crossed my mind sometimes. I have wished I might indulge in folly. I have wished there were no laws to restrain me. I have wished, as the fool, that there were no God. That passage in the Psalms, The fool hath said in his heart there is no God, is wrongly translated. It should be, The fool hath said in his heart, comma, no God. The fool does not say in his heart, there is no God, for he knows there is a God. But he says, no God, I don't want any. I wish there were none. And who among us has not been so foolish as to desire that there were no God? Now conscience, answer another question. You've confessed that you have at times wished there were no God. Now suppose a man wished another dead. Would not that show that he hated him? Yes, it would. And so, my friends, the wish that there were no God proves that we dislike God. When I wish such a man dead and rotting in his grave, when I desire that he were (laughs) non-est, did not exist, I must hate that man. Otherwise, I would not wish him to be extinct. And so that wish... And I do not think there has been a man in this world who has not had it proves that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, but conscience, I have another question. Has not your heart ever desired, since there is a God, that he were a little less holy, a little less pure, so that those things which are now great crimes might be regarded as venial offenses? as peccadilloes. Has your heart ever said, would to God these sins were not forbidden, would that he would be merciful and pass them by without an atonement, would that he were not so severe, so rigorously just, so sternly strict to his integrity. Have you never said that, my heart? Conscience must reply, you have. Well, That wish to change God proves that you are not in love with the God that now is. The God of heaven and earth. And though you may talk of natural religion and boast that you do reverence the God of the green fields, the the grassy meads, the swelling flood, the rolling thunder, the sky, the starry night, the great universe. Oh, you love the poetic ideal of deity. That is not the God of scripture. For you have wished to change his nature. And in that you have proved that you are at enmity with him. But wherefore, conscience, should I go thus round about? You can bear faithful witness, if you would speak the truth, that each person here has so transgressed against God, so continually broken his laws, violated his Sabbath, trampled on his statutes, despised his gospel, that it is true, aye, most true, that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now secondly, we're called upon to notice the universality of this evil. What a broad assertion it is. It is not a single carnal mind or a certain class of characters, but the carnal mind. It's an unqualified statement, including every individual. Whatever mind may properly be called carnal, not having been spiritualized by the power of God's Holy Ghost, is enmity against God. Observe then, first of all, the universality of this as to all persons. Every carnal mind in the world is an end, at enmity against God. This does not exclude even infants at the mother's breast. We call them innocent, and so they are of actual transgression. But as the poet says, within the youngest breast there lies a stone. There is in the carnal mind of an infant enmity against God. It is not developed, but it lies there. Some say that children learn sin by imitation. But no, take a child away. Place it under the most pious influences. Let the very air that it breathes be purified by piety. Let it constantly drink in drafts of holiness. Let it hear nothing but the voice of prayer and praise. Let its ears be always kept in tune by notes of sacred song. And that child, notwithstanding, may still become one of the grossest of transgressors. And though placed apparently on the very road to heaven, it shall, if not directed by divine grace, march downwards to the pit. Oh, how true it is that some who have had the best of parents have been the worst of sons that many who have been trained up under the most holy auspices in the midst of most favorable scenes of piety have nevertheless become loose and wanton. So it is not by imitation, it is by nature that the child is evil. Grant me that the child is carnal, and my text says the carnal mind is enmity against God. The young crocodile, I've heard, when broken from the shell, will, in a moment, begin to put itself in a posture of attack, opening its mouth as if it had been taught and trained. We know that young lions, when tamed and domesticated, still will have the wild nature of their fellows of the forest, and were liberty given them, they would pray, P-R-E-Y, as fiercely as others, and so with the child. You may bind him with the green withes of education. You may do what you will with him. Since you cannot change his heart, that carnal mind shall still be an enmity against God. And notwithstanding intellect, talent, and all you may give to boot, it shall be of the same sinful complexion as every other child if not as apparently evil, for the carnal mind is enmity against God. And if this applies to children, equally does it include every class of men. There are some men who are born into this world, master spirits, who walk about it as giants wrapped in mantles of light and glory. I I refer to the poets, uh, men who stand aloft like Colossi, uh, mightier than we, seeming to be descended from celestial spheres. Uh, There are others of acute intellect who, uh, searching into mysteries of science, discover things that have been hidden from the creation of the world, Uh, men of keen research and mighty erudition. And yet, of each of these, poet, philosopher, metaphysician, great discoverer, it can be said, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Well, you may train him up. You may make his intellect almost angelic. You may strengthen his soul until he shall, until he shall take what are riddles to us and unravel them with his fingers in a moment. You may make him so mighty that he can grasp the iron secrets of the eternal hills and grind them to atoms in his fist. You may give him an eye so keen that he can penetrate the deep secrets of rocks and mountains. You may add a soul so potent that he may slay the giant sphinx that had for ages troubled the mightiest men of learning. Yet, when you've done all of this, his mind shall be a depraved one, and his carnal heart shall still be in opposition to God. Yea, more, you shall bring him to the house of prayer. You shall make him sit constantly under the clearest preaching of the word, where he shall hear the doctrines of grace in all their purity, attended by a holy unction. But if that holy unction does not rest upon him, all shall be vain. He shall attend most regularly. But like the pious door of the chapel that turns in and out, He shall still be the same, having an outside superficial religion, and his carnal mind shall still be at enmity against God. Now, this is not my assertion. It is the declaration of God's word, and you must leave it if you do not believe it. But quarrel not with me. It is my master's message. And it's true of every one of you, men, women, children, and myself too, that if we had not been regenerated and converted, if we have not experienced a change of heart, our carnal mind is still at enmity against God. Again, notice the universality of this at all times. The carnal mind is at all times enmity against God. Oh, say some, it may be true that we are at times, "'opposed to God, but but surely we are not always so. "'There be moments,' says one, "'when I feel rebellious. "'At times my passions lead me astray, "'but surely there are other favorable seasons "'when I really am friendly to God, "'and I offer true devotion. "'I have,' continues the objector, "'stood upon the mountain top "'until my whole soul has kindled with the scene below, "'and my lips have uttered the song of praise. "'These are thy glorious works,' Parent of good, almighty, thine this universal frame. Thus wondrous fair, thyself how wondrous then. (laughs) Yes, but Mark, what is true one day is not false another. The carnal mind is enmity against God at all times. The wolf may sleep, but it is a wolf still. The snake with its azure hues may slumber amid the flowers and the child may stroke its slimy back, but it is a serpent still. It does not change its nature, though it is dormant. The sea is the house of storms, even when it is glassy as a lake. The thunder is still the mighty rolling thunder when it is so much aloft that we hear it not. And the heart... When we perceive not its ebullitions, when it belches not forth its lava, and sends not forth the hot stones of its corruption, is still the same dread volcano. At all times, at all hours, at every moment, I speak this as God speaks it. If you are carnal, you are, each one of you, enmity against god another thought concerning the universality of this statement the whole of the mind is enmity against god the text says the carnal mind is enmity against god that is the entire man every part of him every power every passion it is a question often asked what part of man was injured by the fall some think that the fall was was only felt by the affections and that the intellect was unimpaired. This they argue from the wisdom of man and the mighty discoveries he has made, such as the law of gravitation, the steam engine, the sciences. Now, I consider these things as being a very mean display of wisdom compared with what is to come in, in the next hundred years, and very small compared with what might have been if man's intellect had continued in its pristine condition. I believe the fall crushed man entirely. Albeit when it rolled like an avalanche upon the mighty temple of human nature, some shafts were still left undestroyed, and amidst the ruins you find here and there a flute, a pedestal, a cornice, a a column not quite broken, yet the entire structure fell, and its most glorious relics are fallen ones, leveled in the dust of the whole of man is defaced look at our memory is it not true that the memory is fallen i can recollect evil things far better than those which savor of piety i hear a a bad song that that same music of hell shall jar in my ear when gray hair shall be upon my head but i hear a note of holy praise alas it's forgotten for memory grasps with an iron hand ill things The good she holds with feeble fingers. She suffers the glorious timbers from the forest of Lebanon to swim down the stream of oblivion. But she stops all the dross that floats from the foul city of Sodom. She will retain evil. She will lose good. Memory is fallen. So are the affections. We love everything earthly better than we ought. We soon fix our heart upon a creature, but very seldom upon the Creator. And when the heart is given to Jesus, it is prone to wander. Look at the imagination, too. Oh, how can the imagination revel when the body is in an ill condition? Only give man something that shall well near intoxicate him, drug him with opium, and and how will his imagination dance with joy? Like a bird uncaged, how will it mount with more than eagle's wings? He sees things he had not dreamed of, even in the shades of night. Why did not his imagination work when his body was in a normal state, when it was healthy? Simply because it is depraved. And until he had entered a foul element, until the body had begun to quiver with a kind of intoxication, the fancy would not hold its carnival. We have some splendid specimens of what men could write when they have been under the accursed influence of ardent spirits. It is because the mind is so depraved that it loves something which puts the body into an abnormal condition. And here we have proof that the imagination itself has gone astray. So with the judgment, I might prove how ill it decides. So might I accuse the conscience and tell you how blind it is and how it winks at the greatest follies. I might review all our powers and and write upon the brow of each one, Traitor against heaven. Traitor against God. The whole carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, my hearers, the Bible alone is the religion of Protestants, but whenever I find a certain book much held in reverence by our Episcopalian brethren, entirely on my side, I always feel the greatest delight in quoting from it. Do you know, I am one of the best churchmen in the world, the very best, if you will judge me by the articles, and the very worst if you measure me in any other way. Measure me by the articles, the articles of the Church of England. And I will not stand second to any man under heaven's blue sky in preaching the gospel contained in them. For if there be an excellent epitome of the gospel. It is to be found in the articles of the Church of England. Let me show you that you have not been hearing strange doctrine. Here is the ninth article upon original or birth sin. And I quote, Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of the nature of, Of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And therefore, in every person born into this world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature does remain, yea, in them that are regenerated. Whereby the lust of the flesh, called in the Greek phronema sarkos, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some the affection, some the desire of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle does confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin i need nothing more here will any one who believes in the prayer book dissent from the doctrine that the carnal mind is enmity against god well i have said that i would endeavor in the third place to show the great enormity of this guilt i do fear my brethren that very often when we consider our state, we think not so much of the guilt as of the misery. I've sometimes read sermons upon the inclination of the sinner to evil, in which it has been very powerfully proved. And, and certainly the pride of human nature has been well humbled and brought low. But one thing always strikes me, if it is left out, as being a very great omission, namely the doctrine that man is guilty In all these things. If his heart is against God, we ought to tell him that it is his sin. And if he cannot repent, we ought to show him that sin is the sole cause of his disability. That all his alienation from God is sin. That as long as he keeps from God, it is sin. I fear many of us here must acknowledge that we do not charge the sin of it to our own consciences. Yes, we say we have many corruptions, oh yes, but we sit down very contented. My brethren, we ought not to do so. The the having those corruptions is our crime, which should be confessed as an enormous evil. And if I, as a minister of the gospel, do not press home the sin of the thing, I have missed what is the very virus of it. I have left out the very essence if I have not shown that it is a crime. Now the carnal mind is enmity against God. What a sin it is! This will appear in two ways. Consider the relation in which we stand to God and then remember what God is. And after I have spoken of these two things, I hope you will see indeed that it is a sin to be at enmity with God. What is God to us? He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He bears up the pillars of the universe. His breath perfumes the flowers. His pencil paints them. He is the author of this fair creation. We are the sheep of his pasture. He hath made us, not we ourselves. He stands to us in the relationship of a maker and creator. And from that fact, he claims to be our king. He is our legislator, our lawmaker. And then to make our crime still worse and worse, he is the ruler of providence. For it is he who keeps us from day to day. He supplies our wants. He keeps the breath within our nostrils. He bids the blood still pursue its course through the veins. He holds us in life and prevents us from death. He stands before us, our creator, our king, our sustainer, our benefactor. And I ask, is it not a sin of enormous magnitude? Is it not high treason against the emperor of heaven? Is it not an awful sin, the depth of which we cannot fathom with the line of all our judgment that we, his creatures, dependent upon him, should be at enmity with God? But the crime may be seen to be worse when we think of what God is. Let me appeal personally to you in an interrogatory style, for this has weight with it. Sinner, why are you at enmity with God? God is the God of love. He is kind to his creatures. He regards you with his love of benevolence. This very day His Son has shone upon you. This day you have had food and raiment, and you've come up here in health and strength. Do you hate God because He loves you? Is that the reason? Consider how many mercies you have received at His hand all your lives long. You're born with a body not deformed. You've had a tolerable share of health. You've been recovered many times from sickness. When lying at the gates of death, his arm has held back your soul from the last step to destruction. Do you hate God for for all of this? Do you hate him because he spared your life? By his tender mercy, behold his goodness that he has spread before you. He might have sent you to hell, but you are here. Now, do you hate God for sparing you? Oh, wherefore are you at enmity with him? My fellow creature, do you not know that God sent his son from his bosom, hung him on the tree, and there suffered him to die for sinners, the just for the unjust? Do you hate God for that? Oh, sinner, is this the cause of your enmity? Are you so estranged that you give enmity for love? And when he surrounds you with favors, girds you with mercies, and circles you with loving kindness, do you hate him for this? He might say, as Jesus did to the Jews, for which of these works do you stone me? For which of these works do you hate God? If an earthly benefactor fed you, would you hate him? Did he clothe you? Would you abuse him to his face? Did he give you talents? Would you turn those powers against him? Oh, speak! Would you forge the iron and, and, and strike the dagger into the heart of your best friend? Do you hate your mother who nursed you on her knee? Do you curse your father who so wisely watched over you? Nay, you say, we have some little gratitude towards earthly relatives. Where are your hearts then? Where are your hearts that you can still despise God and be in enmity with him? Oh, Diabolical crime. O oh, satanic enormity. O oh, iniquity, for which words fail in description, to hate the all lovely, to despise the essentially good, to abhor the constantly merciful, to spurn the ever beneficent, to scorn the kind, the gracious one, above all, to hate the God who sent his Son to die for man. Ah, In that thought, carnal mind is enmity against God. There's something which may make us shake, for it is a, a terrible sin to be at enmity with God. I would, I could speak more powerfully, but my Master alone can impress upon you the enormous evil of this horrid state of heart. But There are one or two doctrines in the fourth place, which we will try to deduce from this. Is the carnal mind at enmity against God? Then then salvation cannot be by merit. It must be by grace. If we are at enmity with God, what merit can we have? How can we deserve anything from the being we hate? Even if we were pure as Adam, we could not have any merit, for I do not think Adam had any merit a desert before his creator. When he had kept all his master's law, he was but an unprofitable servant. He had done no more than he ought to have done. He had no surplus, no balance. But since we have become enemies, how much less can we hope to be saved by works? Oh no, the whole Bible tells us from beginning to end that salvation is not by the works of the law, but by the deeds of grace. Martin Luther declared that he constantly preached justification by faith alone because, he said, the people would forget it, so that I was obliged almost to knock my Bible against their heads, to send it into their hearts. And So it is true we constantly forget that salvation is by grace alone. We always want to be uh, putting in some little scrap of our own virtue. We want to be doing something. I remember a saying of old Matthew Wilkes, save by your works? You might as well try to go to America in a paper boat. Save by your works? It's impossible. Oh no, uh, the poor legalist is like a blind horse, going round and round the mill, or like the prisoner going up the treadmill and finding himself no higher after all he has done. He has no solid confidence, no firm ground to rest upon. He has not done enough, never enough. Conscience always says, this is not perfection. Ought to have been better. Salvation for enemies must be by an ambassador, by an atonement, yea, by Christ. Another doctrine we gather from this is the necessity of an entire change of our nature. It is true that by birth we are at enmity with God. How necessary then it is that our nature should be changed. There are few people who sincerely believe this. They think that if they cry, Lord, have mercy upon me, when they lie dying, they shall go to heaven directly. Let me suppose an impossible case for a moment. Let me imagine a man entering heaven without a change of heart. He comes within the gates. He hears a sonnet. He starts. It is to the praise of his enemy. He sees a throne, and on it sits one who is glorious, but but it is his enemy. He walks streets of gold, but those streets belong to his enemy. He sees hosts of angels, but those hosts are the servants of his enemy. He is in his enemy's house, for he is at enmity with God. He could not join the song. He would not know the tune. There he would stand, silent, motionless, until Christ should say with a voice louder than ten thousand thunders, What do you hear? Enemies at a marriage banquet? Enemies in the children's house? Enemies in heaven? Get you gone. Depart, you cursed, into everlasting fire in hell. Oh, sirs, if the unregenerate man could enter heaven. I mention once more the oft-repeated saying of Whitfield: He would be so unhappy in heaven that he would ask God to let him run down into hell for shelter. There must be a change if you consider the future state. For how can enemies of God ever sit down at the banquet of the Lamb? And to conclude, let me remind you, and it is in the text, after all, that this change must be worked by a power beyond your own. An enemy may possibly make himself a friend, but enmity cannot. If it be but an adjunct of his nature to be an enemy, he may change himself into a friend, but it is the very, if it's the very essence of his existence to be enmity, positive, positive. Enmity, enmity itself cannot change itself. No, there must be something done more than we can accomplish. This is just what is forgotten in these days. We must have more preaching of the Holy Spirit if we are to have more conversion work. I tell you, sirs, if you change yourselves and make yourselves better and better and better a thousand times, you will never be good enough for heaven until God's spirit has laid his hand upon you, until he has renewed the heart, until he has purified the soul, until he has changed the entire spirit and new made the man, there can be no entering heaven. How seriously then should each stand and think? Here am I, a creature of a day, a mortal born to die, and yet an immortal. At present I am at enmity with God. What shall I do? Is it not my duty as well as my happiness to ask whether there is a way to be reconciled to God? O weary slaves of sin, are not your ways the paths of folly? Is it wisdom, O my fellow creatures, is it wisdom to hate your creator? Is it wisdom to stand in opposition against him? Is it prudent to despise the riches of his grace? If it be wisdom, it is hell's wisdom. If it be wisdom, it is a wisdom which is folly with God. Oh, may God grant you that you may turn unto Jesus with full purpose of heart. He is the ambassador. He it is who can make peace through his blood. And Though you came in here an enemy, it's possible you may go out through that door. A friend yet, if you can but look to Jesus Christ, the brazen serpent which was lifted up, now it may be some of you are convinced of sin by the Holy Spirit, I will now proclaim to you the way of salvation. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Behold, O trembling penitent, the means of your deliverance. Turn your tearful eye, to yonder mount of Calvary. See the victim of justice, the sacrifice of atonement for your transgression. View the Savior in his agonies, with streams of blood purchasing your soul, and with intensest agonies enduring your punishment. He died for you. If now you do confess your guilt, oh, come, you condemned one, self-condemned, and turn your eye this way, for one look will save. Sinner, you are bitten. Look. It is not but but look. It is simply look. If you can but look to Jesus, you are safe. Hear the voice of the Redeemer. Look unto me and be saved. Look, look, look. O oh, guilty souls, venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. May my blessed master help you to come to him and draw you to his son for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen. Charles Spurgeon. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.